Angular is a free and open source web application framework. It's maintained by the Angular team at Google. It's used by millions of web applications and has a strong ecosystem of core contributors and library builders. In this episode, I interview Minko Genchev, Developer Relations Lead at Google. We explore several aspects of open source software development, TensorFlow.js, Angular, and a few other things worth sticking around for. Minko, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey as a software developer? Sure. Should I start from the very beginning when I wrote my first program, or are you mostly interested in what I'm up to right now? Oh, I love the full journey. If it starts in QBasic or wherever, let's do it. Okay, yeah. It starts in high school. Back then, I didn't think that a normal person can write a program and send instructions to the computer. I thought that this, is, this was incomprehensible for me, literally. And I had classes in software development in Bulgaria. We call it informatics. I'm from a small town in Bulgaria, Eastern Europe. And uh, we use Pascal to just implement a very simple Hello World application. So this was fascinating. This was a little bit, this was kind of mind blowing. After that, we moved to a little bit more advanced programs. For example, just uh, some equations overs. And from there, I got really excited and passionate about software development. So with my high school, te- my high, high school teacher, he knew, he knew PHP, JavaScript, and SQL. So we, were, we created an entire web system which uh, used MySQL as a database. It took me a while to understand what's actually going on. But I was really excited to know that I can create things. So this turned into an obsession. I, was, I, I remember how I, how I used to dream to, that I'm creating software. And I was solving some of the issues in my head or in my dreams, literally. After that, I went to college where it was a pretty constructive environment. A lot of people with similar interests like mine. I was really into Linux back then. So I was spending thousands of hours configuring my vimrc and uh, my dot files which are still somewhere online went into puro into c sharp just uh, that was so yeah i had to have a virtual machine on my machi- on my laptop back then c sharp had more specific requirements and eventually i got introduced to open source from some local communities where i found the whole idea of open source to be very interesting originally I was probably more excited about the visibility and the validation that you're getting out of it. But over time, I saw more and more the value that it brings. So I kept, I continued contributing to open source. Around my open source contributions, I started a company here in Silicon Valley and ended up moving to work on open source full time at Google about three years ago. What specifically about open source is attractive to you? Couple of things. Uh, it gives everyone the opportunity to collaborate and learn from some of the best software engineers out there. As a college student, as a university student in Bulgaria, I was really interested in growing my skill sets. And there were a lot of great software developers around me. But still, there were software projects on another level, such as, let's say, the Linux kernel or back then AngularJS, which was developed by companies like Google or uh, large organizations like Linux, uh, like Linux Foundation, and I was really able to collaborate with some people who were so much invested into software, and I was able to get a lot of 
their ideas, learn from them, get cold reviews, get pretty much mentorship for free just by helping it out with the tasks that they didn't find too exciting that were uh, waiting for contributors in their issue tracker. This was one of the things. Uh, so it gives equal chance to everyone. It doesn't matter whether you are in the world, if you're passionate enough and I'll say motivated, you can work with some of the best software engineers out there and you can get free mentorship. And the second thing is the inspiration from inspirational perspective, you're getting, you can get inspired by open source project. Everyone is passionate about something particular and there is a chance that you'd find something about uh, this particular area, the specific domain on GitHub. So you can look this, uh, you can look up topics that you find interesting and I'm sure there will be something on GitHub that is going to align with your interests and is going to bring you some extra inspiration. Well, to be working on open source full-time sounds in many ways like a dream job, but from a naive perspective, it seems like it doesn't make sense for Google. Why would they pay you to write the code and give it away? Uh, yeah, that's a really good point that you're raising here. There are quite a few benefits for Google itself. None of them are really directly related to the revenue that an open source project would produce for Google. All the benefits are pretty much... And transitive. For example, it, increase with, it increases the reputation of Google in the software development community. If we're developing popular platforms or popular products that are used by millions of developers, this increases the trust in the brand. Also, it helps us hire people. We're using the project that I'm working on at Google, uh, Angular. We're using it heavily within the company. And if we make this project and we maintain it, we'll be, and it, is, it has high adoption externally, then these developers could move to Google eventually and become productive from day one. And making the project open source has a very critical part of the adoption itself. These are just two of the benefits, uh, and there are many others. Developers in the open source community are constantly creating new libraries and resources in the, let's say, for example, blog posts or even answers on Stack Overflow that are benefiting Googlers and external developers as well. And at the same time, it's also a good opportunity to give back to the world in certain, in certain aspects, for example, to software engineers. Inspire them with, by sharing uh, the whole implementation for free. This inspires other projects in the ecosystem which are using similar ideas or solving similar challenges. And what are some of the contributions you've made to Angular? Originally, the very first contribution I made was adding a just a colon, a missing colon in a comment. <laughs> that was back in 2012, I think. Since then, I remember how nervous I was when I was opening this pull request because I didn't think that people from Google they could make a they could miss a, a, a semicolon. That was. So I spent a couple of hours opening this pull request, closing it, and after that reopening it because I messed up something around like the Git history. Although I don't know how, what I could mess up with just a single line of change, but I think I did. And after that, uh, a couple of years later, I started building apps with AngularJS back then. And uh, I found that there are some gaps in best practices. So I implemented the, wrote the style guide with best practices, which turned out to, it got quite some traction in the community. And later on, when the team moved to Angular, started developing the new framework, Angular with TypeScript, I worked on a book and there were literally no resources on learning Angular back then. So I had to get familiar with the code base, with the implementation in order to get better understanding of how the whole thing works. 
And to get better understanding of the implementation, I started contributing what different, let's say, small feature requests or issues. I was getting this mentorship from Googlers who were helping me with reviewing my pull requests, and I was helping them back with fixing some of the issues that they were considering, let's say, boring or that they were not as excited in fixing. And from there, found other gaps in the ecosystem. For example, built a tool for static code analysis for Angular, which uh, later ended up being adopted by the Angular CLI and uh, by Google itself. And that's how the Angular team got interested in me and invited me to go through the interview process. Very cool. Well, on paper, it seems like if you can make a pull request and it can be accepted, then you've made a change. But I imagine for a project as big as Angular, there must be a little bit more process to it. Can you speak to, I don't know, any of the internal ways that things are looked at when pull requests come in or maybe how you encourage people to submit good pull requests? Yes. Yeah, that's another excellent question. That definitely could be really challenging, especially when someone wants to implement a massive feature that is not necessarily very much related to the vision that the team has for Angular. This could be pretty frustrating. I can imagine how someone can spend months in implementing something really that they're really passionate about, uh, really complicated. And at the end, this pull request can be well-structured, but may not align with how Angular is envisioned to grow in the future. So a couple of guidelines here are first to, if there is a large feature proposal from someone, they should for sure first go with opening a feature request that would go through discussion from the Angular team and from uh, people from the community. We recently introduced a feature request process that includes voting. So if the feature request gets enough of votes, then we're going to consider it. We're going to see whether it aligns with the future vision of Angular and we're going to decide how to move forward with it. Uh, so that's that's a very important part of the process for sure. If folks don't necessarily want to contribute with a large feature, they can just open a pull request for a small issue, let's say. And an important part there is to first file the issue or find an existing issue, because this might be unexpected behavior, who knows? And from there, open a pull request or first state that they would want to be working on the specific thing so that there are no people, not, no two people in parallel who are developing it, because this way the effort could be wasted as well. And make sure there are no, no already existing pull requests with the same topic. And from there, we go through a regular triage process. So we're going to look at the pull request. We're going to probably have quite a few back and forths because of coding style or because of backward incompatible behavior. And eventually, uh, we're going to merge the pull requests and it is going to go in and it's going to be used by literally millions of developers. So developers have lots of choices today, especially on a greenfield project. Why do they pick Angular? A couple of the reasons for that are that Angular comes opinionated. So if you would want to build an application with Angular, you must use, for example, TypeScript. We believe that static typing is a very important part of the development process, especially if you're planning to build a production app that is going to scale. Angular is also comes in pretty opinionated. I'll say that there are still a lot of decisions that could be made to make it even more opinionated, but we're trying to find the right trade-offs, the, the, the right line from where we should be, where we are opinionated enough and where this opinionation is uh, 
causing inconveniences for developers. But Angular is definitely opinionated. We have a platform that integrates well together, and we have this integration of this platform with the Angular style guide, which discusses best practices, such as, let's say, file, uh, directory structure, naming things, and so on and so forth. These are two of the benefits. Others are that we have a pretty massive ecosystem right now. There are literally tens of thousands of developers who are building libraries for Angular. And uh, Angular is pretty stable. Uh, as I mentioned, it is used by thousands of projects within Google. And every single change we make in Angular, we're testing against all these thousands of projects. If we break any one of them, this means that the change was backwards incompatible and we either roll back or we work on making it compatible, if that's what we want. So stability, opinionation, and ecosystem. These are some of the main benefits. And from there, there are others as well, clearly. Uh, we are at Google, so we're working with a lot of web platform teams. So we're making sure that Angular is always on top of the uh, latest web standards. For example, we adopted trusted types and we were pretty much the, the first framework that adopted trusted types, which is a spec that allows to take advantage of a web platform feature that prevents cross-site scripting attacks. And the investment in backward compatibility also allows us to implement, requires us to implement the ng update experience. So with a single command, we're once we release a new major version of Angular, we are encouraging everyone to run this ng update command so that they can get up to date with the latest features, bug fixes and security uh, fixes in Angular. Well, when it comes to static typing, the, I guess, number one reason I hear people give for why you want to choose something statically typed is because a lot of errors will then be found at compile time rather than at runtime. And of course, you want to get those errors sooner. Is there anything else that I'm missing? Are there reasons why static typing uh, makes Angular a better choice for a lot of groups? Yeah, uh, static typing definitely allows us to catch a lot of issues. Something that we often uh, don't appreciate enough is the development, the development experience improvements that static typing is bringing. For example, auto-completion is great with TypeScript. We know all the different fields and their types and all the different objects that we're uh, accessing. So this is definitely a great benefit. And many of the issues we're catching, even as part of our development process, we don't have to run compilations so that we can catch potential issues. Static typing also allows us to build more advanced tooling based on the type information that we have. For example, in Angular, this ng-update experience is, making, is allowing us to make very advanced refactorings only because we understand the whole type information within the project. And type systems are also very, very convenient for automatic generation of documentation or reasoning about the source code. And clearly also refactoring. We can rename a field, and based on the time information, this change can propagate across the entire project. So there are quite a few benefits of static typing. As, and as you, as you said, catching issues ahead of time is one of the most tempting benefits. There, there was a research by Microsoft, I believe, and a couple of folks from the academia where they were comparing how would open source projects that were implemented in JavaScript would have benefited if they had a type system, if they were implemented in, let's say, Flow or uh, TypeScript. And I think they discovered that at least 
10 to 15% from their of the issues in their issue tracker would have been caught by the type system ahead of time. So that's pretty significant benefit. Maybe the motivation to create TypeScript even, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think most listeners will certainly be familiar with Angular, even if they haven't had the opportunity to go use it themselves yet. I'm not quite as confident everyone will know what guess.js is. So I wanted to ask you, what is guess.js? Yeah, guess.js is a project that I, it is a pretty much a conference-driven development that <laughs> caused its implementation. Back in, I think, maybe 2017, I wanted to speak on a conference in, uh, at Oxford Render, and I was thinking, what cool thing can I build for this conference? Can I start prefetching crowds in the application by using machine learning? It's like, maybe I can. Let's, let's, let's figure out how to do that. And I applied for the conference. My talk ended up being accepted. <laughs> so I had to figure it out. I remember I was here in, in the Bay Area when like hanging out on a dinner with friends and um, with a colleague. Back then, actually, he was not a colleague of mine. He was just a person I really admired in the open source community, Adios Manny. I um, chatted with him and I mentioned that that's something that I'm planning to build. And he said, well, yeah, I was thinking about this too and I have been doing some high-level exploration. Uh, so a couple of weeks after that, after spending like hours in just writing things in my notebook, I figured out how we can use Google Analytics in order to build some kind of a data analytics model that we can later on use in order to prefetch routes in an application and make it in a way that it is pretty much developer ergonomic so that people can add one Webpack plugin to their Webpack config, specify their Google Analytics view ID, and from there everything will happen automatically for them. And uh, yeah, I uh, wrote a very blog post explaining all the theory behind that. It was a lot of fun to figure this problem out and make it work with popular frameworks, such as Angular back then. Uh, the original framework we supported with Gadgets was actually Gatsby, which is a React-based static site generator. And we also introduced support for Next.js and Nuxt, which are respectively React and the Vue frameworks. Later on, Addy ended up sharing this project as part of his web talk on Google I.O. Uh, 2018, which was, I, I felt pretty excited. That was before I joined Google. So <laughs> listening his talk online and hearing him, hear him, hearing him talk about GitJS was like a, a dream come true back then for me. Very cool. Well, it sounds very easy to set up for a developer. I'm wondering if we can explore what's going on under the hood. What is being guessed? Yeah. So it depends on the implementation right now. Since I joined Google, we explored this topic even further with the TensorFlow.js team, and we're doing more accurate predictions. I can talk about both implementations. I can start with the original implementation of GetJS, and after that, we can move on to the more advanced one. So what happens internally is when someone runs ng-build, let's say in the context of Angular or npm run-build, we are first with OAuth requesting access to their Google Analytics data based on the view ID that they have specified. Once we fetch this data, we're going to have tuples. In these tuples, uh, we're going to capture how many people went from page A to page B. 
And based on this information, we can build a very basic prediction model, very basic predictive model, which uh, calculates the probability for one person to go from page A to page B rather than to page C. Once we have this information, we can embed it into the mains application bundle and later on introduce a small runtime that when it detects that the user is navigating from one page to another, or they have navigated from one page to another already, we can look at which are the most likely to be visited next neighbors and we can prefetch the corresponding JavaScript bundles. That's pretty much how it works on a high level. There are quite a few challenges in the meantime, how we can make sure that the model that we're building is small enough so it doesn't add a high performance penalty to the user's application. Uh, and the second challenge is how we can map routes that we're getting from Google Analytics to actual JavaScript bundles, because this is not a trivial problem to solve. Yeah, both are interesting. Uh, maybe we could uh, unpack the routes and bundles challenge first. Sure, yeah. So with frameworks, uh, we usually have routing. And the routing, the declarations of the routes within the application, they usually map pretty much one-to-one -on -one with the routes that we have in Google Analytics. For example, if you have page, let's, let's say page slash A, we're going to have a route called slash A that points out to a particular JavaScript file. If we have a route called, let's say, colon ID, this is probably going to be a placeholder. So there is going to be a route parameter here that could map to a variety of different pages in Google Analytics. But this is still something deterministic. We can still figure out to which routes this route declaration eventually uh, maps to. Now, when we have the, once, we, once we have the route and the corresponding JavaScript entry point that needs to be loaded for this particular route, we can plug into the build process and figure out which is the, uh, what is the name of the bundle, JavaScript bundle that is associated with this entry point. And we can transform the graph that we're getting from Google Analytics with, or, or this probabilistic model, let's say, uh, from uh, which uh, corresponds to which pages are likely to be needed from a given page to which bundles are likely to be needed after given bundle is already loaded. That's pretty much how it works on a high level. It pretty much involves some static code analysis. And since uh, JavaScript routers, they could be pretty dynamic. We can have the declaration of the path. It could be a concatenation of strings, let's say. The path could be the string slash plus the string concatenated with the string A. This also involves some partial evaluation. So as part of the build process, we're going to look at the source code and trying to and to try to evaluate it to something uh, to a static value to to a literal. That's I guess that's on a high level. It might I might be getting into a little bit like too many details. Um, the implementation is also available on GitHub. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Well, machine learning can take a variety of different forms, but I think the stereotypical one people think of is. You get some raw data, maybe you do some feature engineering, now you have a training set and uh, hopefully some objective function you want to predict. Is that what's going on here or is it a different flavor of machine learning? In GetJS, we're using a very simple Markov chain model, so not necessarily, nothing really too advanced. It is a very simple matrix which predicts uh, pretty much the, the values in the matrix as 
what is the probability for the user to go from route A to route B? That's that's it. With TensorFlow, we explored a deep neural network that we built based on the same information. What is how many users went from actually uh, there we considered also a user identifier so that we can personalize the predictions for a particular user. There we used a um, more advanced pipeline where we're taking the data from Google Analytics, mapping it with um, piping it to MapReduce, where we're passing it to TensorFlow Extended, building a TensorFlow model where the different features, the different variables, let's say, or like features in the model are the user identifier and the navigations that they have performed. And this TensorFlow.js model, TensorFlow model, we are wrapping it into TensorFlow.js and running it into the browser. Very cool. Do you see any major performance differences between the Markov approach and the TensorFlow approach? Yeah, with the Markov chain, the payload of the model is way smaller. And also at runtime, we don't really have to invoke a complicated neural network, which needs to perform some GPU calculations. We can just perform a very simple constant lookup. That's it. So I would say that in the majority of use cases, when the very high level uh, the very uh, high accuracy is not critical. People can just go with uh, Markov chain. Another great advantage of the Markov chain is that for every bundle, we can just have the corresponding row of the matrix of the matrix embedded inside of it. So we don't have to ship the whole model as part of the application. We can ship parts of the model in different parts of the application. And this makes it even more efficient. That's how GitJS functions currently. I guess, what is that model? I know there's like the Onyx format that we might use if we're going to do some deep learning. TensorFlow has its own formats. How are you managing the Markov model in your JavaScript? Uh, literally, it's just one vector currently. It is uh, a, a matrix, but since we can... So it, it is usually a... Actually, it's, not, it's a map when, when I think about it. You, it is a matrix, but since, since we're taking different roles of this matrix and embedding them into separate bundles, we're just keeping all the neighbors of the particular bundle. And from there, we are keeping also the weights or the probabilities for the user to go to uh, another bundle. We are removing irrelevant values. And we're also doing some processing of the probabilities themselves to keep them short, let's say, reducing the precision a little bit because we don't, ha- don't want to have decimals with like a couple of dozens of digits Interesting. for performance mm-hmm. reasons. Well, am I correct in saying the goal is really to empower the prefetching decision? Mm-hmm. And then what gets the, the next page gets prefetched, I guess. Is that all managed through the Webpack integration, or do I need to do anything as a developer to ensure that that goes smooth? It is all done through the Webpack integration, yeah. And it also follows best practices. We worked with the Chrome team in order to figure out what is the most optimal way to prefetch without causing any frame drops. So we're running the predictions, even though the predictions are literally just a for loop over all the neighbors of the current bundle, uh, of the current bundle and removing all the neighbors that are below certain probability thresholds, which probability thresholds depends on the user's network speed. Even though the, com- the computation is pretty simple, we are still running it in a request idle callback which is a callback that the browser executes when it doesn't really have anything important to do so that we don't drop frames. 
And uh, we're using also a low priority prefetching with link rel prefetch that the browser can prioritize whenever there are no critical resources that it needs to download. And are there any metrics of success that you look at? Like, obviously, if you prefetch something and then I click on that, that's a win. But if you prefetch something, I click on something else. Is that a loss? Yeah, we're not capturing this information so that we can keep the uh, JavaScript in the model as minimal as possible. I, we have done a couple of... It very much depends on how often people redeploy the model on whether, uh, on, and uh, whether they're making significant changes in the structure of their applications. Uh, we have done a uh, test with a Pakistani job website. It has hundreds of thousands of users who are visiting the website every day. And with the pre-aggressive prefetching, we reached about 90% accuracy. So that was, that was a decent win. And also, it was way more efficient compared to alternative prefetching strategies where we're prefetching all the JavaScript bundles with, associated with visible links on the page, let's say. But still, we can overfetch for sure. Makes sense. And is that something a developer might want to fine-tune, or do they just trust that Guess is doing the best job it can? Yeah, developers can overwrite the weight. So Guess.js tries to be adaptive, to adapt based on the network speed of the user. So if the user is on an LTE network, then Guess.js is going to be a little bit more aggressive, and there is one probability threshold. For a slow 3G network, let's say there is another probability threshold, and for a 2G network, there is a third one. So. Uh, there are some default values, but developers can override them if they need to. If I do some major changes to the routing structure of my site, or maybe just introduce some new routes that are especially popular, what happens then? Do, obviously, there needs to be a time of adjustment if the user's behavior changes. How does guest.js respond? This pretty much depends on the information from Google Analytics. At first, when there are not enough users who have visited uh, the new routes, the information might not be extremely accurate. Over time, once you have more data for the user navigation, for, for the patterns of the users navigating across the application, then the accuracy will improve. So uh, yeah, it all depends on how for how long these routes have been up and how many people have interacted with them. And in deciding between if they want to take the Markov model approach or use the TensorFlow model, which, as you point out, has the added benefit. It could be coming up with predictions that are specific to a particular user, if that's appropriate. How should a team decide which way to go? The Markov-based approach, currently, it is very magical, I would say, and it works with Webpack version 4. So I haven't updated it to version 5 just yet. That's uh, one of the differences. And also the Markov model approach, it only prefetches JavaScript. What we implemented with TensorFlow.js was a service worker prefetching approach because the TensorFlow model, it could be, although it is really well optimized, it could be heavier running it in the main thread. So we are running it in a web in a service worker and the service worker is prefetching predefined set of resources in its service worker cache. And also the machine learning, the TensorFlow pipeline, it is way more sophisticated with, lay, with way less automation. So I would say that I'll recommend this approach for developers who are more advanced. They're sure what they're doing and uh, they 
have high level of confidence that accurate predictive prefetching in their website is going to be beneficial for their business. So I have always thought that Google Analytics was a somewhat underutilized resource for projects exactly like this one, that, you know, it's this wealth of data, it has an API, you can query against it, maybe do some interesting real-time stuff. Are you aware of other projects, maybe something that inspired guests, or alternatively, do you have any ideas for how companies could be better making use of this, uh, what I'm asserting to be an underutilized resource? I think there, there was some prior work uh, before GuestJS, Adi, Adiosmani, he captured some of the prior investi- investigation in this, di- in this direction, in the readme of the project. That's that's everything that we found. I think some folks were using a little bit more manual approach in order to pre- predict the uh, prefetching order and the, re- which resources are more critical for prefetching. Right now, what I'm thinking is maybe for some recommender systems this is pretty much a recommender system we're recommending which bundles might be needed in the future so we're prefetching them for some a little bit more product features i think the same approach could be pretty valuable as well yeah uh, generally the direction that i'm thinking about is in terms of uh, recommender systems i'm sure there is probably way more but probably that's that's just a space i've been focused on over the past couple of years actually yeah promising route for sure do you consider guest.js to be complete or is there ongoing development? Yeah, it has been com- it is pretty complete, I'd say. It works better with some technologies than others and currently it does not support webpack version 5, so I have open an issue to gouge the interest. If people really want us to support the latest version of webpack then this is something that we can do. Aside from that, Definitely, there is always an opportunity to add new features, but I think it is in a pretty good state when everything more than this is going to be potentially a scope creep. So it is in a good place right now. Works particularly well with frameworks where the routing structure is statically analyzable, in particular Angular and uh, Next.js right now. And is there any reason why I might not want to install guest.js? Could my site be structured in a, a weird way where uh, it would have little or no benefit? Yeah, uh, actually, guest.js is not going to be the first approach that I would recommend to people, exactly because even though it has developer-friendly experience, the lack of Webpack version 5 support right now and also the fact that people would have to necessarily have Statically analyzable routing structure. Sometimes it is just a constraint that people can't afford. So, a couple of alternative approaches for prefetching that I would recommend are prefetching on mouse over of particular resource or uh, quick link prefetching, which is prefetching of the resources associated with links that are visible on the page. These are very easy to set up, they work pretty well, at least with. Well, at least with Angular, this has been my focus, but I think uh, alternative JavaScript frameworks can have have their implementations as well. So yeah, that's what I would go with first. And do you have any opinions on whether or not features like that, uh, the hover prefetch, for example, is there a reason someone would say that should just be baked into Angular? Or are there fine lines here between framework and library that uh, you can highlight? We have been having similar discussions with the team about whether there should be 
baked into Angular. Yeah, maybe it should be. Uh, it is uh, for sure baked into some frameworks. When we were, I was collaborating with Kyle Matthews from Gatsby, uh, I think this approach was baked into Gatsby. In Angular, we had an alternative preloading strategy that there we call them preloading, which was preload all, so that we should eventually deprecate because it is pretty pretty heavy on the CPU sometimes with a lot of routes. I would say that we are not opinionated about this just yet. Uh, we we can consider being opinionated about it, but this also adds extra extra bytes to the production bundle, and we're not sure that absolutely everyone will be benefiting from it. That's a good argument there, yeah. Well, are there any things on the Angular side, uh, maybe recent releases or stuff coming up on the roadmap that you're excited about and able to speak to? Yeah, there are quite a few things that are happening right now. So the biggest release over the past year that we did was Angular DevTools. It currently has over 105,000 people using it, I believe. We are working towards optional ng-modules or standalone components. This is a significant change or simplification of the mental model. People would not have to declare Angular modules. They can just use the very basic uh, component model and declare the dependencies of their components within their metadata. And this from its own, by its own unblocks a couple of other proposals that we, we are exploring. One of them is template composition API, so people can dynamically assemble their templates at runtime if they need to. Another one is out-of-band type checking. Oh, this is actually something that we have explored in the past. This is uh, type, actually this is not really well, this is not necessarily related to standalone components. Uh, what I meant to say is a more um, localized component comp compilation. Now, when developers are specifying the dependencies of their components directly in the metadata, then we have more explicit dependency graph, which would allow us to make the build process faster. So let's say around standalone components, I'm pretty excited about how it will reduce the learning curve, and from there, what benefit it is going to bring to the developer ergonomics and to the build speed. Makes sense. Minkle, where can people keep up with you online? I'm most active on Twitter and LinkedIn. So you can find me on both places. My my username there is mgechev, the first letter of my first name and my last name. And I recently started a newsletter where I'm pretty much... So I've been sharing tips and tricks about JavaScript, Angular, and development tooling over the past couple of years now. And if you're following these channels on social media, definitely you're going to get exposed to all these tips and tricks. And the, in the newsletter, I'm just, uh, some people just prefer to consume this content in an email format. So that's an alternative place. You can find it on my Twitter profile as well. I recommend people take a look at that and sign up. Minko, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun chatting about Angular and GetJS.